0: Welcome to Subversion with 1517. I'm your host, Zach Slayback. Subversion is a podcast dedicated to exploring big ideas, pushing against accepted opinion, and, just maybe, inciting more creative subversion in society. We feature talks, interviews, and conversations with thinkers, entrepreneurs, and researchers around topics that otherwise get overlooked or accepted without a critical lens. Often, we feature two complementary or opposing viewpoints on the same topic. We're setting the stage to ask big questions and think critically about significant ideas outside of universities' lecture halls. This episode specifically features ways of looking at and understanding the past, and our places in relationship to the past. It's easy to think that the odd, the unusual, or the seemingly crazy practices of our ancestors are forms of barbarism or savagery. We live in an age of science and rationality, and this age is still a relatively young one. Yet these odd and unusual practices are rarely explained away easily by simply calling them mere barbarism. There may be more to learn from our ancestors than our highly rationalistic position in the 21st century lends itself towards. We spoke with two leading experts for making sense of and learning from the past. One, Peter Leeson, is an economist who has explained everything from piracy on the high seas to human sacrifice to sideshow freaks through the economic lens and the economic way of thinking. The other one, Joseph Henrik, uses a lens of cultural and biological evolution to make sense of not just the past, but also existing cultural differences across the world. Before we get into that, I want to make a quick note and just say some quick thanks. Subversion is a production of 1517 Fund. 1517 Fund supports teams led by young founders with grant, pre-seed, and seed funding. Hackers, makers, scientists, and those building new technologies outside of tracked institutions like the universities can learn more about working with 1517 Fund at 1517fund.com, and specifically at 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action. Please do inquire, set up a conversation, set up a call. We'd love to hear from you, because remember that a real education is a liberation. And now we'll get started. Our first guest today, the first person we spoke with, is Peter Leeson. He's the Duncan Black Professor of Economics and Law at George Mason University. Leeson is specifically well-known for extending rational choice theory, or what we'll refer to in the conversation as the economic way of thinking, to the bizarre, the weird, the unusual, and uh, rituals and superstitions. He's published on a number of topics. Uh, Specifically, he's well-known for a book known as The Invisible Hook, and then also more recently for a book known as WTF, an economic tour of the weird. If you look that book up on Amazon, there are two WTFs. Specifically, his is the one that looks like a carnival advertisement. I came across Leeson's work. Specifically, he has a paper titled "Human Sacrifice," where he uses a rational choice model to explain human sacrifice into a pre-colonial uh, in a pre-colonial society. So, fascinating, fascinating, fascinating conversation with Professor Leeson today. We go over a number of things like human sacrifice, like some piracies, uh, like trial by ordeal in uh, Dark Ages and Middle uh, Middle Ages societies. And then we also look at some of the weird things that we experience today. So enjoy the conversation with Professor Leeson. Look up his book, WTF, An Economic Tour of the Weird. And stay tuned afterwards for a conversation with Joe Henrik. Pete, thank you for joining me this morning.
1: My pleasure to be here, Zach.
0: So you recently released "WTF: An Economic Tour of the Weird" from Stanford University Press. Uh, can you tell our listeners a little bit about that and the intellectual path you've been on? You know, you've got an interesting <laughs> CV when it comes to articles and books.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I uh, I have an interest in in strange things. I guess you might say that and. Um, you know, one of the one of the things about strange things, and what we can kind of get into it in a bit, I guess, what what I mean by that, but unusual social practices, the the batshit crazy stuff, at least seemingly batshit crazy stuff, that people seem to do. And as an economist, when I come across this stuff, I wonder, you know, well, what could possibly sort of explain this. And that ends up, you know, resulting in the the kind of very eclectic research that I've done. Uh, and at one point, I decided, you know, how cool would it be to basically put this stuff together in the form of a book that's set up as a museum of social oddities, where I'm the tour guide and I'm sort of taking the reader through this literal museum of sort of Ripley's believe it or not type stuff, uh, explaining and or helping the reader to see what might be the, the hidden sense behind otherwise seemingly senseless human behaviors. And so that was sort of the genesis of the book.
0: Yeah, I recall in some of the uh, promotion I saw for the book, it, it's, it's kind of, you even look at the cover of the book, not that you should judge a book by its cover, but it's kind of got this almost carnival like look to it, right? And people yeah. go to carnivals because carnivals are full of freaks and weird things, right? Yep. So so what's your favorite, you know, oddity that you explain using economic modeling
1: in the book? Oh my gosh, I don't even I don't know that I have a favorite um some of them were they were all challenging, I should say that each one of the so each chapter of the book is a different stop on the tour. And um each of them reflects academic research that I'd done on a particular peculiar social practice. But that the research that went into each one of those things was several years. So um and some of them were, were more than several years. They were they were lots of years. And those ones were the were the most challenging. So in a way I'm kind of partial to the hardest ones, I guess, um, if that makes sense. And and then there's some that are just like they're all crazy, but some of them are, are crazier than others. But I think, you know, all in, all things considered, my favorite is probably um, one of the first ones that I began with, which was on medieval trial by uh, fire and water.
0: Okay. Um, so this is, is this like someone is thrown into a pond and they have rocks attached to them and whether or not they float or sink is, determines their guilt?
1: Kind of. So the, the, the throwing people into water with the rocks thing is, is not real. That's sort of movie movie magic or it may look who the hell knows. Somebody may have done it, but it wasn't the practice. It wasn't typical or certainly characteristic of the practice, the practice being called ordeals trial by ordeal. Um, The, the, there were a bunch of varieties of them. And one of them involved cold water and one of them involved hot stuff. So in the cold water one, what they did was they took the, a defendant, you know, you've been accused of committing some crime, and they only used these things, I should say, when ordinary evidence of your guilt or innocence wasn't available. But you need to remember that, you know, this these ordeals were used, the sort of heyday of them was between the 9th and the 13th centuries. Um, so it was a, you know, a really long time, hundreds of years but during this period, it's it's the Middle Ages. So there aren't even like, you know, street lamps that would illuminate areas where you might be able to have observed if, you know, Joe had stabbed Jane or whatever it was. So and a lot is, of times,
0: is, is this primarily in what would become Great Britain or is this in continental Europe?
1: This is all of Western Europe. Okay. So It's actually crazy. So, and, and this is one of the, this is sort of the sidebar here for a second, but this is one of the important things to recognize about the peculiar, bizarre social practices that WTF uh, examines is that although they are bizarre, at least on the surface, they were central to organizing humanity's most important social affairs uh, in the times in which they existed. So these aren't oddities in the sense that they're trivial. They're oddities in the sense that they're, they're literally odd. They seem weird. But they were really important. And you get a sense from that when something lasts for the better part of a millennium uh, and it's used throughout all of the Western world and parts of the non-Western world, there's probably something to it, right? There's more than just mm-hmm. stupidity. Um, no, I think I think
0: this is something that um, the derivatives trader Nassim Taleb calls the Lindy effect, right? If mm-hmm. you're he, and he's taking it off of the name of a deli in New York that's just been there for a very long time. If it, if the deli's been there for a very long time, it's probably a decent deli, right? Exactly. exactly for hundreds or thousands of years. There's probably something to it that we can't necessarily just dismiss because it looks funky, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the that's. You know, one of the most basic takeaways from WTF and my thinking in general is that idea that long-lasting institutions are exactly this Lindy effect. You know, they're they're there for a reason. And so, you know, how, how might we be able to use the economic way of thinking to get a better handle on why they were good or if they were good?
0: And what do you mean by the economic way of thinking? Because uh, people, I feel like they would look at a lot of these norms, institutions, whatever you want to call them, practices... And you either fall into um, kind of a a rational, almost rationalistic uh, dismissal of them as like, oh, you know, people were, people just weren't as enlightened back then, or we fall into like anthropological models, uh, or we almost fall into Marxian class-based models. So what do you mean by the economic way of thinking?
1: To me, the economic way of thinking is synonymous with what's, what's called rational choice theory. And the basic of it is really simple. There's only two assumptions that underlie the economic way of thinking, which is a sort of framework for analyzing human behavior in general. And that is first the assumption that resources are scarce. Because of scarcity, people have to choose. Can't have everything, right? And the second assumption is simply an assumption about how people choose when they make choices. And that is as best as they can, given the limitations that they confront. That's it. Scarcity plus rationality persistently and consistently applied, even when it seems like it couldn't possibly apply, is what the economic way of thinking is about.
0: So that that second tenet, is that uh, akin to the homo economicus model that says that people are going to make decisions based on what they perceive to be uh, the best payout for them?
1: So it depends. I'm comfortable with that but I should say that that homo economicus is sort of like I feel really bad for poor homo economicus because he gets beat up all the time. <laughs> right, right. And people are constantly, you know, sort of kicking him in the nads and and actually I, I view what, what I'm doing is sort of trying to give him a cup, you know, or to protect him a little bit. Um, but he means different things to different people. So sometimes the criticisms are sensible but maybe we don't want to be calling that homo economicus. Other times I think, you know, maybe they're just not so sensible. But I think if we just think about homo economicus for our purposes, as the guy who faces scarcity and then makes his choices, so he has goals, right, he has some end that he's pursuing, that end could be anything incidentally, right? It doesn't have to be about maximizing his own material welfare, which is sort of something that we often associate with homo economicus, but isn't critical to him. The critical part is that he's, he's confronts scarcity, he's got a goal. And then he pursues that goal in a sensible mat in a sensible manner, given the limitations of, of his environment. That's all that he's about.
0: Now, I, I enjoy the, uh, the straw man of homo economicus where he's just a, a util maximizing, you know, uh, actor somewhere. And it's like that there's all these utils that he has to go pick up on the ground. Right. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. as if he's like somehow able to perceive exactly what the utility uh, payoff of any specific thing is going to be to him at any given time. Um, so with that all in mind, let's go back to your example of medieval trial by water and fire. Uh, let's say we're in a situation where the we we don't know if um, Joe uh, stabbed uh, Jan, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't really have evidence to tell us whether that's the case or not. How would uh, trial by water or fire be some kind of way of resolving this conflict?
1: Okay. Yeah. So, so what they did was, so they did one of one of two things. They either sent you to a cold ordeal, in which case they would say to Joe, okay, you know, listen, we're going to ask you to undergo the trial by cold water, and in that one, they would throw him into a pool of holy water, no rock involved, and if he sank, he was considered innocent, and if he floated, he was considered guilty. In a hot ordeal, they would either trial a, a cauldron of, uh, I'm sorry, boil a cauldron of water and ask Joe to plunge his hand into it and pull out an object. And if the uh, if his arm got burned by the boiling water, he was convicted of the crime. And if his arm was unscathed, then he was exonerated. Or they asked him to carry a a, a red hot burning uh, iron a certain number of paces in the same sort of logic applied. See,
0: in our conversation here, it sounds reasonable enough to me to say like, oh yeah, you know, if something's been around for a long time, there's some kind of reason to it, and we shouldn't be, you know, haughty modernists and just throw it out the window. But that stuff sounds pretty appalling. <laughs> what,
1: what's, what's the explanation for it? Well, in to, to, the key to understanding a lot, of, a lot of these seemingly senseless behaviors is to sort of, you got to put yourself in the shoes, be homo economicus, but be homo economicus in those particular shoes of the time and place, right? And to do that, you, you, know, you have to spend a lot of time learning about what the time and place that that person confronted looked like. So in the case of medieval Europe, Ah, uh, there was a popular superstition, a popular belief that people had, called Judicium Day, which is simply Latin for the judgment of God. And according to this belief, if priests who are the ones who were conducting these uh, trials, these ordeals, if priests performed the appropriate rituals, they could call on God. Let's use the hot water example uh, for a moment to perform a miracle that would prevent the water from boiling you if you were innocent, and God would let the water boil you if you were guilty. And that was their their way of thinking about or the way that they presented why it is that trial by boiling water would actually be able to effectively find fact, for instance, with regard to Joe's guilt or innocence. So imagine that, you know, you as Joe believe that superstition, right, like other medieval Europeans of the time. There's two possibilities here, either you, you know, obviously Joe, know, you know if you committed the crime or not, right, but the court doesn't know. So. If you suppose first that uh, you you committed the crime, you're guilty, and you know that it's true. Well, if you plunge your arm into the water, you expect that God's going to let the water boil you, based on on your belief about how these things work, and which means not only you're going to be convicted of the crime and you know be sentenced to pay a fine or whatever the punishment the state imposed punishment of the time was, but you're also going to have your arm boiled to rags, right? So it'd be better if you just confessed, you know, you might have to to, you're still gonna have to Mm. face the state imposed punishment, but at least you won't have your arm boiled to rags. So if you're, if you committed the crime and you know that you have a strong incentive in the face of having to undergo this trial by boiling water to confess. Mm. Now suppose instead that you're innocent. You didn't commit the crime, you know that, right? But the court doesn't know. Well, you expect that if you plunge your arm into the water, that God will perform the miracle that exonerates you, which means not only that you won't, since you're exonerated, you, you don't face this the the punishment for having committed the crime, but also your arm will be unharmed. That means that you're better off plunging your arm into the boiling water, at least according to your thinking, right. than confessing to the crime. And so
0: that parenthetical phrase, at least according to your thinking, is really important
1: here, right? It's uh, the, the, the critical thing thing upon which the entire system hinges. Obviously, if you don't believe in the superstition, then the incentives that you face, the relative costs and benefits of undergoing the ordeal aren't going to be what's appropriate in order to make the system function.
0: Okay. So so you have to keep in mind that the individual in this case, the, the innocent individual plunging his arm into the boiling water, also has these beliefs, these funky look, looking weird beliefs in mind, right?
1: Mm-hmm. exactly it's it's again, yeah, not don't just keep it in mind, but like really keep it in mind at the forefront of your mind, and that's true with all that's part of putting yourself in the shoes of the person of the time, right, only if you look through the world through their eyes can you see the incentives that they confront, and then is it possible to think about how the the in this case judicial system could leverage that thinking, could leverage those beliefs? through costs and benefits to manipulate your incentive to behave in situations.
0: And is it appropriate so, to say that uh, the value structure that they have in mind, including their, their beliefs about you know, um, the, the judgment of God, things like that, that's what actually structures the incentive structure they have?
1: Yes. It is, it is fair to say that um, with, the, with the added piece of it that it's not the belief by itself so much as it's the belief leveraged by the system. So in this case, it's the specter of undergoing the ordeal that Joe faces, which is what the legal system is confronting him with in conjunction with his belief. So it's leverage. It knows that he has that belief, which means that it knows that it can offer him this choice to undergo the ordeal or to confess, which translates into a difference in incentive that leads him to behave in the way that the system wants. The belief by itself doesn't do that. It's the belief being leveraged via the system. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, it's the belief integrated into a landscape of, of norms that other people are holding and that this system evolves around, right? Exactly,
1: exactly. And so, so this, this way of thinking is sort of a way of thinking more generally about how it is that cultural rituals, especially those that seem nonsensical, could emerge and persist their social usefulness, as we were talking about before.
0: Well, the the thing that actually turned me onto your work initially was an article you have called Human Sacrifice about human sacrifice. And I think that's a uh, an interesting example to explore because a, a number of our listeners will actually be familiar with analyses of human sacrifice from a different perspective, and that's René Girard's perspective in the medics. But your, uh, your perspective, you, being informed by the economic way of thinking, provides a similar explanation as the Girardian framework, but still doesn't fall into necessarily some sort of... Um, Explanation via mysticism. Can we run through uh, explanations for human sacrifice and what happens when we try to meddle with those that as an institution?
1: Yeah. So um, the, the the case human sacrifice as practiced by different people in different times and places, I think, had different social functions. So it evolved for different reasons. Uh, the particular case that I focus on in the paper that that you're referring to was on the Khans of India, a group. That was discovered by the uh, British colonials in the 19th century, who occupied the foothills of the of the Gap Mountains, and uh, they found that what these guys were doing, these communities were doing, their communities were, were huge. I don't remember the population figures off the top of my head, but it was, it was a lot of people. What they were doing was purchasing uh, predominantly children from outside the community, and then ritually immolating them ostensibly for the purpose of appeasing uh, a bloodthirsty earth goddess who's um, who you, you wanted to be on her good side basically if, if you wanted to have a good, a good crop yield. These were agricultural people. Uh, so that's different. That's a totally different type of human sacrifice. I think even, even more appalling and certainly harder to explain than say human sacrifice among the Aztecs which has pretty straightforward you know kill your enemy type functions it's not that not that hard to imagine why people were doing it
0: right you're not you're not sacrificing a god or a deity figure either you're sacrificing an ostensibly innocent child right correct and the community perceives even if they're they're buying this child from outside the community they still perceive this child as innocent
1: yeah yeah the idea is not the idea is not that the child did anything wrong the idea is that this uh this earth goddess is you know she's she's surly, and she likes blood, and she likes the blood of children in particular, and so that's what you give her.
0: Okay, how, how does that evolve?
1: <laughs> well, it's a, it's a kind of involve, involved answer, but the, the basic idea that I go back to, to to try and think about this practice is the reasoning behind, which itself is perhaps counterintuitive, that sometimes the best way to protect your valuable property is to actually destroy part of your valuable property, right? So if you think about you know, um, a, uh, a thief who wants to steal something valuable that you have, you know, the ordinary way that we think about trying to, if we think about it economically intuitive, intuitively, right? There's, there's two sorts of ways that we can make him, try and make him less likely to do that. And the ordinary way is that we think about somehow raising his cost of stealing from us, so maybe we put a lock on our door, which makes it harder for him to get into our house to steal it. That raises his cost, which deters him, uh, makes him less likely to, to break into our house. Or maybe we carry a, a gun in our purse mm-hmm. so that we could you know, defend ourselves if he attacks us. And that raises the cost of him attacking us and trying to take our stuff. So raising the cost on the one hand. But there's this other thing that we do that doesn't get as much attention. And that is we can also reduce the benefit of what he could get holding the defensiveness or the cost part constant. So if the thing that he's after has special value to him for a particular reason, if we sort of throw that into the river, so to speak, or we burn it up or we destroy it, well now his incentive to attack us has gone away. So we can also reduce the benefit of him trying to steal from us. I think about human sacrifice among the Khans uh, in Orissa, India, as basically a, a spectacular way to publicly communicate that if you 're a community who 's immolating one of these children, I had some wealth, I spent it on one of these kids, and look i 'm literally effectively burning my wealth now in, in incarnate form, but I you know the money that I spent on the kid after I destroyed the kid means that, that wealth is destroyed, and that makes me a less valuable and likely target of another community 's plunder hmm. and The reason that was really important here was going back to the fact that these are agricultural communities is that they're ultimately a community's wealth depended upon how well, not the earth goddess, but how well, you know, mother nature, if you want to think about it that way, treated them. And so, you know, in the same periods of time, one community might get favorable weather or favorable rain, another might not. And so there would be these wealth disparities. And this was a state, these were stateless people. So, What would happen if one community got, you know, a good weather shock and one got a bad weather shock is that the group that got the bad weather shock would want to attack the group that got the good weather shock to take their stuff. So one thing that the the wealthier community, the one that got the good weather shock, could do would be to preemptively demonstrate that, in fact, they were not wealthier by actually destroying part of their wealth in order to make them unattractive targets of conflict.
0: So they were they were deterred. So it, it's important here, and I think this is one of the important insights from the economic way of thinking. But is that the realistic alternatives on the table for these people were either keep their children and be attacked, or burn a child and be less likely to be
1: attacked? Yes, but I, I should point out it wasn't their children, so they were so burning. a child. <laughs> yes, burn a child, and the key, the reason that burning a child worked was that to get these children they had to pay people to basically kidnap them from people who lived you know, off the mountain. So there were people off the mountain, other communities not related to these tribes that were living their own lives. You know, They were having kids. And what the communities in question would do would basically pay somebody to go and kidnap the kid. And then there was this whole, this whole market in trading these kids that were gonna be immolated. And it was a really expensive market, which is why when you burned one of them alive, you were communicating and it was clear that you had just burned a lot of your wealth, right? Cause you'd spent a lot to get something that now no longer had any value.
0: Because this market is an open market. People know generally what the price of kidnapping one of these children will cost that community.
1: That's exactly right. In within the, the, the communities that are operating. so within the broad within the con society, there were more or less sort of ritually driven prices on the market. If you want to think about it that way, or, or, um, customary prices, such that if you saw a certain type of person being immolated, you knew the community had probably spent X amount of dollars versus Y amount of dollars if it was a different type of person.
0: And I would imagine something like a healthy child would be a relatively expensive thing to burn.
1: Yeah, a lot of times very expensive. I mean, imagine if you knew... You don't, probably don't want to imagine this, but so <laughs> think about what would be involved, the type of, you know, you, gotta, you have to find somebody who's going to be willing to go and take one of these kids. you got to then go and take the kid. Sometimes they would actually be able to bribe the, the, the kid's uh, extended family members, maybe to put the kid in a position where they could essentially be kidnapped and taken up to the community. It was a very expensive operation.
0: So there's an open market. People generally know that this is very expensive and there's uh, a general idea in place for why people are doing this within these communities, right? And then another community comes from the outside world uh, that has no bearing on this practice and tries to impose a different set of rules or institutions on a community like this. They, they see it and they say, man, this is barbaric. This is terrible. We have to get rid of this. What would, it, what would happen?
1: Well, that's so that's exactly what did happen. It's a great question. It's exactly what did happen. so the the British stumbled upon these guys um by accident, basically, and they were, you know, as you would imagine, utterly shocked. It's a quite foreign practice to to British society in the nineteenth century or today for today, for that matter. Uh, and so you know naturally that there was the the sort of kind of reaction that you get actually today with respect to the international community. And Liberia. This is shifting for a second, but it's, it's closely connected. So remember how we were talking about those medieval trials by fire and water? Well, in contemporary Liberia, they actually, most judicial procedure pr- procedures uh, in the rural part of that country, which is the majority of it, continue to operate on the basis of those ordeals that I was telling you about. They're still this,
0: using, this is a country that was a U.S. colony. We're talking about
1: Liberia in Africa, right? That's correct. That's correct. So they're still using it today. Uh, and the reaction is, oh my, you know, this is horrendous. And look, look at these people following this barbaric, idiotic practice. We need to stamp it out. And that's this the same reaction that the British had in the 19th century uh, it, with the cons of Arista with respect to the practice of, of uh, human sacrifice. And the problem is, the sens- to, get, to get back to your question, the central issue is if you just try and stamp the practice out because it seems stupid or barbaric to you, you're missing the general economic point which is that this practice evolved for a purpose as we getting back to what we were saying before, that is probably socially useful. There's probably a reason for it. And so this means two things. One, if you just try and stamp it out, even if you're successful, if you don't replace it with anything, um, you are eliminating some institution that was performing an important role, which means that there's a vacuum left. That role isn't going to be performed. Imagine if you just stamped out trial by ordeal in contemporary Liberia, and there was nothing to fill the void. Well, you might think that it's barbaric to try people by fire and water, but it's a hell of a lot better than not trying people for crimes at all. In that case, crime just runs rampant. So people don't, don't you know, you need to understand that, that piece of it, that you can't just stamp it out. And the, and the second is, is sort of the, these unintended consequences, which I think you were getting at, you know, that can be that are often generated as a result of this. You're unlikely, extremely unlikely, to be able to actually stamp the practice out if you don't understand the functional reason that it's there and then think about, if you're gonna think about intervening, if we should do that at all, how we would intervene in a way that addresses the function. Um, and that gets really, really hard and really, really complex.
0: And it's hard enough for us to think about this question today, you know, hundreds of years later. And you can imagine the place of somebody who comes in as a colonial invader has no idea the history of the region that they're working with, has no idea uh, why these institutions are in, in the places that they are. It would, I imagine it would be much, much harder in that case, too. Oh,
1: absolutely, absolutely. And there's actually an interesting sort of contrast case here, right? So if we think, actually, the situation that the British confronted was much simpler than the situation that we would confront today if we were trying to intervene in Liberia with respect to trial by ordeal. Uh, and, and here's the two sorts of ways things can go. So in Liberia, ultimately, the problem is the, re- so you might, or you should ask yourself, why in the hell in Liberia are they still using trial by ordeal? Why don't they use, you know, trial by jury or the inquisitorial procedure that they use on the continent? Why don't they use DNA evidence or, you know, some other tech modern technology that we have to find fact? And the answer comes back to, remember what I said about economics being about resource, uh, resource scarcity and rationality? A different way of, of calling res- of scarcity is to say constraints, that people don't have unlimited options. They only have limited options, right? In Liberia, the reason they don't appeal to those other institutions of fact-finding is that they face a constraint that prevents them from doing that, and that is that their government is extraordinarily weak in the first place and dysfunctional in the second. So there are actually no public courts in many parts of rural Liberia in the first place, and those that are accessible, which are not very accessible, uh, are staffed by corrupt judicial officers who nobody wants to have their case heard by. So, in that world, and this is a very simple, taking it in a very simple way, ultimately to solve the problem of of criminal justice, to get rid of trial by ordeal, you would need to somehow solve the problem of the weak and failed state of Liberia, and ask around. We don't have a solution to that. Yeah, that that sounds like a really complex problem to
0: solve. <laughs>
1: extraordinarily, right? Extraordinarily so. Now shift back for a second to uh the british in in india with respect to human sacrifice so they kind of you know it was still a, still a difficult problem they tried to stamp it out in a bunch of different ways they went and pleaded with the cons the, the, these communities these these people who were practicing and you know tried to show them the way and and they they tried to incentivize them they tried the carrot and the stick uh but none of this stuff worked which makes sense because if human sacrifice was performing the social function that I suggest it was which was ultimately protecting private property rights and preventing conflict. Well that's a pretty damn important thing to be giving up just because the British come and ask you to, right? It's society will literally fall apart if you don't have that function performed. Finally though, and this is why it's a bit of a contrast to the Liberian case, the British kind of by happenstance, by luck figured it out. They, they realized that and they went to the cons and they said, well you know, what if we we see that you guys are stateless over here and you've got, you're using you're using this system. They didn't understand that the system was connected to protecting private property rights, but they knew that the cons felt that their property was insecure. And so they said to them, what if we agreed to basically protect your private property rights and to make sure that conflict is not. Um, you know, rippling through your society constantly? Would you be willing to give up human sacrifice in return for that? And the Khan said, yes. And that's in fact what happened. And when they did, when private property rights were well protected, in this case externally, and sort of by luck of, of the British, um, human sacrifice went away and ritual immolation of children among the Khans disappeared. So the lesson from that is not that I think we can successfully intervene. That That's not the, you know, as I say, it was basically chance. It was, you're going to get lucky every now and again. But the lesson is, first of all, it should tell us something important about the theory, I think, that I'm suggesting for the practice being true, because that theory predicts that the practice would go away if an external form of private property protection that was superior appeared, which is exactly what happened. Um, but it also shows us, again, that we need to think about this, whether we want to meddle or not meddle. Either way, the first step is to understand and appreciate that something that on the surface seems totally horrible and crazy exists for a good reason. And that's what economics, I think, furnishes for us here.
0: In the specific case of the ritual child sacrifice, uh, do we know what the levels of uh, intercommunity violence were before and after getting rid of it?
1: You know, we don't, or I don't, I should say. Okay. I studied this thing uh, for probably two or three years. And there's nothing like, or at least that I came across, there was nothing like hard data that would give us that information. And part of the reason for that is that the records that exist, um, by necessity, are records that came to light only after the British discovered these things. Right, right. Which is at the very tail end of the practice, because the British then end up providing property rights. So what we wanted to know would be what was conflict like before as you say, and what was it like after, but that data essentially... That would
0: be very difficult to figure out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really easy for us here, you know, you and I talking over the internet, you an economist, people listening to this, uh, to think like, wow, okay, this is an interesting way to stop and think about the way that there are weird things that evolved in the past that actually played pretty important roles. But I, what, what could we have today that would fall into that category? Have you looked at some of the odd cultural practices that we might have, say, in the United States or in the Western world today, that most people look at and like they shake their head or they dismiss it as something like uh, petty tribalism that actually plays a role
1: like this? Oh, yeah. There are tons of them. There are tons of them. Let's and, dig at them. Well, I want to use one, I want to use one that might not seem that, that crazy at first, but I want to use it because it connects back to ordeals. And it, again, it it sort of underscores this point about things that seem stupid. If you think about it through the logic of economics, you can actually begin to see that logic in things that we sort of take for granted as not not stupid. And this one occupies a sort of middle place. And that is, in the United States, polygraph tests, so-called lie detectors, right? Now, maybe many of your listeners know, although maybe they don't. A ton of people don't, which is actually key to this. Polygraph tests are horse shit. So there's no more scientific evidence supporting the idea that you could physiologically measure whether someone is lying or telling the truth than there is behind the idea that God intervened in trials of fire of wa- and water. Yeah, it's and essentially
0: a giant bo- uh, boiling cauldron, isn't it?
1: <laughs> Precisely. And I won't walk through the whole thing, but exa- you can see the logic of it works exactly like the logic of ordeals. Conditional on... Modern Americans, for example, or they're used even more widely uh, in continental Europe, uh, lie detector tests. conditional on people believing that lie detector tests can actually detect lies. They can perform a socially useful fact-finding function in exactly the same way, in terms of logic, that trial by fire and water did. So, you know, that's one piece of it. Another another piece, moving up a a level, I think, in weirdness, but it's still something that we take for granted, Many of your listeners are probably familiar with the practice of Bible swearing, which for a long time was customary in U.S. courtrooms, still is customary in some courtrooms today. When you, you know, We take it for granted again, when you think about it, think about what we're doing. We are at least pretending that there's something, we're pretending that God exists, and furthermore, that conditional on him existing, that he gives a shit whether or not we lie or tell the truth right? That's ultimately what that practice is about. And then we're right. using that in our most important um, institutions, in our judicial institutions, uh, ostensibly to improve the outcome, which should strike people as stupid, but in fact doesn't, isn't stupid using similar logic to the logic of ordeals or polygraph tests again. So that's a sort of simple, simple examples, I think, but you can begin to see and think about, I mean, hell, here's another example. To be honest, trial by jury. <laughs> Why is it? that, what, what reason is there for thinking that twelve, you know, ostensibly randomly selected peers, as, you know, as we're supposed to refer to them, are going to be good at figuring out whether or not, figuring out the facts of the case uh, before them? They're really, you know, lots of people have criticized trial by jury for this reason, and I think rightfully so. But it's missing the broader point, which is that if criminal defendants think that twelve randomly selected peers are able to get to the bottom of things then they're going to behave in a way they're going to enter right. plea bargains for example that are different than if they uh, if they didn't have that belief so superstition in different forms is all around us doesn't matter if you're in a scientifically so-called scientifically oriented society or not it's there and it's there for a reason
0: so one of the things you and I were discussing about before we actually started recording the podcast and that I'd actually discussed with uh, some of the some of my team members while we were putting together a list of people we wanted to speak with uh, is what there, there's not just in say civic life, right? Like swearing on the Bible or trial by jury, but there's also like weird cultural practices, especially for our audience around, especially higher education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the thing I think is, I kind of look at it and I'm like, that seems like needlessly costly as a way of Signaling that you're part of like an in group would be uh, hazing as part of Greek life, right? Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, what what would be a potential way of looking at uh, some of these awful, terrible practices around hazing? I mean, uh, when I was at university, a student uh, ended up getting killed uh, going through one of these processes because it's like very, very dangerous, and it's usually like once or twice a year you see at a major university, something like Penn State or Ohio State, where a student gets killed going through the hazing process.
1: Yeah, so I mean, you know, I think you're right and more broadly, Greek life on campuses in general is a kind of, you know, what the hell WTF moment, I think. You know, it's a weird it's a weird institution. Um the whole thing is weird. Hazing uh,
0: it's 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 really only an American thing too because you look at what what is the university as a set of experiences, right? uh there's there's lectures there's learning uh there's uh networking to a certain extent and there's a social life and a lot of that social life is really only an american thing because it turns largely on uh the greek life component of it like canadian universities to my knowledge don't have greek life as
1: as as a part of the
0: university
2: mhm mhm
1: yeah no absolutely and i think thinking about that variation is is ultimately important to figuring out the reason for the institution and the practices. But if we, you know, if we think about hazing for a minute, um, I, I think the first thing to say is that while there are horrible tragedies that occur, they are still extraordinarily rare, extraordinarily rare relative to the number of people who go through, right? So that's important to, to sort of keep in mind. And the reason I think it's important to keep in mind is that it, no matter what function we think the hazing process might be serving, the cost it's it's difficult to rationalize any practice if the cost of it ends up being enormous i mean in principle the benefit just needs to be even more enormous but if you know every third person who pledged a fraternity ended up dead i think the that hazing procedure at least that produced that outcome would go away very very quickly because the right, cost would right. be too damn high so it's it's relatively rare but you're right you know, even the even the the uh, less lethal, hazing <laughs> um, procedures or aspects of, of Greek life, I think, would be becoming a member uh, are can be pretty severe. And you know, I, I haven't worked on this, but but the way I would first start thinking about it as well, that suggests that obviously they, it's important for them in some way to select on some dimensions. So, what is being selected for? If you basically make it very costly if you make it a huge pain in the ass to become a member of you know fraternity x uh what how does that affect the type of people who are likely to become members to first of all apply to become members and then ultimately get accepted and i think you know one of the things so i actually pledged a fraternity when i was in college and then very quickly backed out of it Uh, so you know maybe i'm not the best person to talk about this but Uh, I think a big part of what it's, of of what seems to be being selected for it are, I guess it's twofold. One is, uh, highly social people, people who are, are, are going to become networkers and are, are outgoing types. Uh, and the end, the other one is loyalty. People who, a lot of the, the, at least the, the minimal stuff that I went through, um, which was dumb, seemed to be, the way I sort of thought about it was, well, ultimately what they're trying to do here is to show sort of, you know, that I would, you know, supposedly do anything for my brothers, you know, that that I would do anything to help them out no matter the cost. So that's basically selecting on loyalty. So where does networking and loyalty play a hugely important role in our lives? Uh, Well, everywhere in in fact, but especially in the job market. Hmm. You know, employment is largely based on that. I'm not in the private sector, but my my wife is, and I interact with a lot of people who are, uh, and I like to think I just have common sense. And and from my perspective, if I were an employer, if I were hiring people much more than, you know, where they went to school, which I could care less about, or even what, you know, what books they read, what I want to know is, is the person loyal? Uh, and is the person personable? You know, can they interact with other people? At least for a lot of jobs, that, those are critically important skills.
0: And loyal to a relatively arbitrary institution as well. Like a lot of people choose their fraternity just based on what they thought they heard good things about for the same reason that they choose a job. Precisely.
1: Precisely. So it's not and loyal to like your church, for example. Oh, no, that's right. right. That's right. Exactly and what you find so what the, what the you know there's there's work done on on labor market outcomes for people who are fraternity and sorority members and what it finds is that if you holding other things constant if you were a uh, in the greek system you are considerably more likely to get a first job coming out of college and your starting salary is substantially higher i mean it's we're talking like on the order of like 50% higher. Oh, it,
0: it's not just your uh, starting salary, but your lifetime earnings are actually substantially higher, something like 20 to 30%.
1: Oh, no and kidding, I didn't, even, I didn't even know that. So your,
0: your GPA drops on average, but <laughs> you, your average earnings over your lifetime increase.
1: That makes perfect sense. So when you think about it in terms of that, now you think go, going back to what the fraternity is selecting on and you think about now we can begin to understand some of the otherwise seemingly senseless procedures that they're using to sort. Or at least we can begin to understand how it is something that seems stupid could persist for so long.
0: Now that that makes sense. Um, so our listeners are listening to you here. They, they've they gotten a dose of the economic way of thinking, trying to understand why certain to at least how they can step back and look at some of these weird, these odd, these uh, unusual cultural practices and norms might evolve as institutions, why they might be there. What would be you know one piece of advice you might give to them next time they're struck by something and they immediately think like, "Oh well, that's really, really weird
1: Think in terms of incentives if you can if you can can understand. What the constraints are, what the specific type of relevant scarcity is that the people in a situation or that the people that they're observing confront and then think about the incentives within that that those people face, and that might be going back to thinking about you know what what beliefs they might hold or something else that's the foundation for beginning to understand the rationality behind what seems like it couldn't possibly be uh, rational and you know I want to just very quickly say that there's an important and this is I think the, the the comparative advantage of the economic way of thinking about this these things there are other disciplines that want that talk about the same sometimes talk about the same sorts of practices and institutions or more generally human institutions and practices and offer alternative ways of thinking about them Um, but I think that the economic way of thinking alone is able to not only explain the particular practice in question, but provide this general framework for explaining others, avoiding sort of ad hocery. you know, the way that I like to to put it to people sometimes is that for, for economists, uh, you know, the analysis might begin with culture, but it doesn't end with culture, culture provides us uh, the question. It poses the, why the hell are people doing this question? But it doesn't provide the answer. Culture is not an answer to that question. And I feel non-economic treatments of social practices often basically are are doing a little sleight of hand where they're they're using the word culture, which is precisely what we need to explain, to actually act as the explanation itself. Mm. And this... This this economic logic that I've tried to offer, this idea of scarcity and rationality and incentives, um, avoids that. And I think that's what makes it such a powerful way for thinking about the world.
0: Pete, thank you for joining
1: me. Thanks so much, Zach.
0: Shifting gears slightly from rational choice theory, my next guest, Joseph Henrich, is a professor in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University, He's written a number of books, most recently his book, The Secret of Our Success, looks at a lot of the topics that we talk about in our brief 30-minute conversation today. And rather than looking at things through the lens, a good way of thinking about how this juxtaposes against our conversation with Professor Leeson, Professor Leeson largely is looking at these things through uh, a rational actor model of the individuals in each of these situations, right? And that does lead itself towards larger group decisions, like the decision to sacrifice a relatively expensive individual to signal to other groups that we don't have anything that you should come take, like in the human sacrifice example. Professor Henrik and other cultural and evolutionary biologists more look at this from the level of how are we passing on knowledge, how are societies understanding and interacting with each other, and what is the significance of many of these practices? How do these practices help us pass on our genes and pass on our culture as a society so very fun conversation you'll want to stay tuned after that for a brief wrap-up conversation between myself and michael gibson that we talk about a lot of the ideas applied here and how those might affect our lives moving forward so without further ado my conversation with professor Hendrick professor Hendrik, thank you for joining me today yeah, it's great to be with you. Hey, so we've had a, a number of discussions on the latent pro-social functions of various traditions, rituals, and practices, and that's something that really sits in your wheelhouse. Uh, a lot of your work focuses on trying to make sense of the past and trying to make sense of not only the past in the Western tradition, but make sense of institutions, norms, and practices outside of uh, the Western tradition. So when it comes, when somebody comes across an odd practice in the past or even outside of their culture today, what is the approach that you would take to trying to make sense of that practice?
3: Well, I think one of the most important things we want to realize with human behavior is that, um, we've evolved through genetic evolution to be kind of automatic and unconscious cultural learners. So from a very young age, uh, As early as we've been able to measure it in babies, people are looking out into the world and acquiring ideas, beliefs, values, practices, mimicry, imitation, all this kind of stuff is constantly going on. So we're really drinking in a lot and we're selective about who we pay attention to, which creates this process that I've called cultural evolution, myself and others. Um, So, and that's going to create kind of unconscious, behind the scenes uh, processes of change, which over generations, generate all kinds of fancy behavioral patterns which the actors themselves, people, aren't actually aware of how or why they work. So there's all kinds of examples of this, you know, from technology to ritual practices, um, to religion, to medicinal plant uses, to cooking recipes. Um, it really pervades all of uh, human culture.
0: Well, let, let's dig into that a little bit further. Can you provide an example, say, from religious practices uh, that I- evolves for this reason,
3: yeah, sure, I mean, uh, perhaps the best studied uh, domain is ritual, so you know people in diverse societies do rituals that involve lots of synchrony, dancing, repetitive action, certain kinds of music rhythms, um, oftentimes things involving painful initiations, uh, these things called rites of terror, where young boys are put through these terrifying rites and Individually, psychologists have pulled these elements out and found that they, uh, to various degrees, induce prosociality, a kind of, they bond the participants. So you can actually solidify social bonds among the group uh, by performing these rituals. But the people themselves, of course, think they're doing it to make a sacrifice to a god or because you have to do this in order to become a man or all kinds of kind of not very well worked out understandings of causality, which don't actually... Um, have anything to do why, with why the ritual spread. So the groups that do this tend to become more successful. They're imitated by other groups or they expand at the expense of other groups who are less cooperative. And so you get the diffusion of these kinds of ritual practices across the landscape. And this has been documented in New Guinea and Australia. Uh, so it's kind of a nice mix of psychology and anthropology.
0: So there's intergroup mimicry, so we mimic the groups that we see succeeding, and is this a conscious process, or is this more something that bleeds into uh, across the cultures?
3: Well, it can be conscious, Uh, it can happen unconsciously as people just interact and meet people from different groups, Uh, but there's actually documented cases of groups having a meeting and they're trying to decide how to increase their pig production, say. And they'll decide, well, what, are that, what does that other group do that they seem to be producing so many pigs? Uh, and then they'll, you know, in this, in this case, they actually went to the group and uh, purchased their ritual practices, which they believed would increase their pig production. So this caused the ritual to move from one group to another group. And this is actually common in New Guinea. Of course, it happens in the modern economy. So when a company becomes successful, Other companies will mimic all their practices, including complete nonsense practices, uh, which they, years later, decide were were kind of stupid.
0: So in in that point in particular, is there a certain point at which the mimicry actually ends up undermining the competitive advantage that this particular practice brings to the table?
3: Well, the thing with the mimicry is it it causes the, the transfer of lots of different practices, only some of which... Uh, could, might be related to the advantage that the group has. So, in the case of the rituals we were talking about earlier, there's a bunch of elements in those rituals that are helping that group say to be more cooperative and more successful. But of course, there's a bunch of other baggage uh, which may may not be doing anything or may even have some negative effects. And that only gets sorted out over longer stretches of time. So, you know, one group that has a certain set of useful ritual practices might be copied by a number of other groups. And some of those groups get some subset, some get a different subset. And so, you know, filtering out that over time, you gradually put together better and better packages.
0: So one level higher from specific religious rituals, uh, some of your work focuses on the evolution of monotheism as a uh, religious norm. And it's actually a relatively odd and new religious norm, if that's correct. So what on your model could explain the rise of monotheism uh, versus, you know, the polytheistic norm that uh, persisted for so long throughout human history?
3: Well, uh, it's the, the monotheism part, the one God part, is not the key part. The key part is the emergence of big, powerful, moralizing gods. So uh, when anthropologists study the small-scale hunter-gatherer societies, They find that the gods are amorical, weak and whimsical, they can be bought or bribed with different rituals. And although you see this as societies scale up and get more complex, what you see is that there are more and more gods that are concerned with human morality, that are willing to punish in some cases, they might punish adultery or they might punish murder. They might be selective about you know, what counts as a murderer whether you murder a dangerous outgroup or you murder someone from, from your own community. And the idea that my, myself and Arnor and Zion and others have been pursuing is that um, there's a long process by which societies that had bigger, more powerful gods that were more willing to punish people in ways that that led to the success of their groups, that that caused those particular supernatural beliefs to spread. And it's not till 200 or so BC that you get the emergence of um, universalizing religions, religions with ethical codes, where there are big powerful gods concerned with people adhering to those codes. Uh, And of course, one of the things you had to do was unroot the gods from some local tribe. So you could and so anyone can join essentially, so there are special rituals to bringing people who want to join so you know you get this gradually fashioned, it comes out of the urban centers in the Mediterranean, um you know actually stretching across to Persian and India, and there's this kind of wash of different religious ideas going back and forth, and you know Christianity is one of the things that comes out of that mix,
0: so the Abrahamic religions have um this this all powerful uh you know singular kind of God component to them prior to the adoption of something like that, what was the intergroup stance if you will, on the existence of different gods and say another tribe has another god, and I have a god is it such that my God must be superior to their God or their God cannot exist
3: well the the cannot exist seems to be uh one of the later innovations so it seems that, you know, from what we know anthropologically and the, the historical stuff that we have on this, is that people typically assume that the the other tribes' gods existed, but they just weren't their gods. So you can see this in the Bible, you know, the the Jewish God is always concerned about worship of these other gods from these other tribes, and the Greek gods were concerned about the worship of foreign gods, and it was one of the few things they punished actually, the Greek gods. Um, you know, so the, and you can see in a competitive setting where where God beliefs are competing against other God beliefs, that's going to emerge. But the default setting seems to be to assume the other gods existed; they're just not my gods. Now, the question of who's got the more powerful God—that's uh, up for grabs. I guess people always hope that their God is more powerful. But you know, he's, and you can also buy off other people's gods. So in Polynesia, you'd have different island groups to so say were at war, and they'd have different gods. But you could make sacrifices to the other guy's gods, and you know to get that God to be less supportive of them.
0: And this is one of the things that I've read about the difference between the Old Testament uh, biblical God and the New Testament biblical God is that the Old Testament biblical God is much more like these deities that you just note here in the sense that uh, although he is very concerned with human morality and with uh, the practice of worshiping other gods, the fact that he's even concerned with the practice of worshiping other gods recognizes that, A, there are other gods, and two, that he can be bargained with. Is there uh, an evolutionary difference from a cultural perspective between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the societies which that those uh, respective sections of the Bible influenced?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, so I like this book by, uh, by Wright called The Evolution of God. It's kind of a, uh, you know, it's a trade book, but it goes through the the evolution of the, of what becomes the Christian Judeo Christian God and you can you know you can see a change from this polytheistic religion into monolatry where you acknowledge that other gods exist but you should only worship one God eventually to the idea that only a single God exists and all the other gods are so sort of, uh fake um, so yeah I mean you can if you a close reading of the texts you know along with other other kind of information um, kind of shows that in a nice way. So you can see it. that's it's kind of one case of the development of supernatural beliefs. The, the interesting thing about the evolution of religion is that there's, you know, the things being selected for are things like a contingent afterlife. So there's different ways to do that. You could have something like resurrection of the body. You could have notions of karma with uh, reincarnation. And, you know, in, in Buddhism and Hinduism, who are, they're evolving at the same time as Christianity. They're kind of Getting the same trick, but but by a different route, with you know reincarnation.
0: So, can you identify uh, cases throughout history where a, a carte blanche, either rejection or a revision of religious cultural practices or rituals, has uh, resulted in unintended negative
3: consequences? Um. Well, so we have one uh, kind of interesting set of cases. Is there's these utopian communities in 19th century america Uh, this is what mormonism comes out of and uh you know lots of the so we have the history of those and most of them go extinct in a few decades so famously uh some groups uh said that you know members should never have sex so they had a mandatory celibacy for the whole group uh the shakers i think had that and so those groups they can only persist by in migration because they don't biologically reproduce themselves uh, and, and that turns out to be a bad strategy because one of your main sources of future adherence is children uh, so that's a case where a group adopted celibacy for everyone and uh, it's, it's hard to persist if, if you don't if, if you don't have kids
0: so what are some of the origins of Western individualism it's easy for those in the West to assume that everybody else is like us and I think that this you've identified this for example in uh, some of the experimental research, we use, uh, you know, <laughs> undergraduate students from uh, American universities to try to make insights about uh, human psychology across societies. You've identified an acronym, WEIRD. Just how weird are we as Western individualists?
3: Yeah, so when, when myself and Steve Heinen, and Arunor and Zion started putting together all the available data uh, from psychology and behavioral economics and a few other places to try to assess that, um, we found that the Western subjects typically used by psychologists, so, so undergraduate students, were at the far end of the distribution, not every time, but, but pretty often. And so not only are Westerners one slice of a big diversity of uh, psychological differences across the species, but a particularly unusual group, sometimes at the end of the distribution, sometimes outliers. So, you know, the the domains relate to individualism, but they include emotions like guilt. They include styles of thinking like analytic instead of holistic thinking. Uh, They include what economists think of as social preferences like patience or self-regulation. Things like trust in strangers. Um, Even facts about how we think about plants and animals are different because Westerners often grow up in urban areas and and don't have very much knowledge of plants and animals. And that seems to leave our system for thinking about plants and animals uh, as a bit depauperate.
0: Can you give me an example of uh, a study that when done with a a different uh, selection of subjects yielded very different results?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, the one I'm most familiar with is an experiment from behavioral economics called the Ultimatum game. So in the ultimatum game, there's two anonymous players, and they're given a sum of real money, say $100, and it's the job of the first player to offer a portion of that sum to the second player, who then has two choices. They can either accept the offer from the first player or reject it. If they accept it, they get the amount of the offer, and the first player gets the remainder. If they reject it, both players get zero. So if their first player was to offer 10 of his $100 to the second player, second player accepts it. He gets the 10. The first player gets 90. If he rejects it, both players go home with zero. So this is a one-shot anonymous interaction. So that the simple prediction from game theory is that self-interested actors should make very low offers, say $10 or $1 if you can do it, $1 increments. And then the second player is faced with a choice between some money, say the $1, or no money. And so they always prefer some money to no money. So they would take the $1 and the first player goes home with 99. When this was done with undergraduates and then later with adults, that the results are even stronger with adults in the West. Uh, the most common offer is 50-50. The mean offer comes in about 45%. Offers below about 30% are frequently rejected. And my team and I have taken that uh, around the world and done it in uh, an immense diversity of societies, including hunter-gatherers from Africa and horticulturalists in South America and Africa and the South Pacific and New Guinea, and you get an incredible range that goes from mean offers of about um, 25% all the way up to offers just below 60%. Um, you go from societies where you can't find anyone who will reject a positive offer to societies where the only sensible thing to do is um, give half because otherwise your your payments are affected so that it's, it's not, not self-interested to give less than half, and that, that's actually the US. Um, so yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of variation.
0: Uh, what's the most marked variation that you've seen against the West, and what might be a cultural explanation for that?
3: Well, a lot of the pro-social tasks, things like measures of people's trust, um, things related to corruption, uh, people's willingness to kind of uh, break rules in order to benefit themselves or their families or stuff, seems to vary immensely across societies. Uh, and the, the, my project these days is um, trying to explain that variation by looking at uh, people's family structures. So it, se- it seems to me
0: that an implication of your research here would be uh, some even-handedness in doing things specifically in the field of international development and international aid. There's a temptation, I think, particularly from uh, Western Uh, development experts to go into developing countries and to just simply impose certain institutions that worked really well here uh, or in other Western uh, developed nations onto these developing countries. Often, though, that we see that that backfires, results in higher levels of corruption uh, and does not generate the anticipated result. What would be a a better approach for trying to build wealth and build the institutions that lend themselves to wealth and innovation in these societies?
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, just to rephrase a little bit, what you said is that the problem that uh, international development faces is that there's a fit between people's psychology, um, how they see the world, how they parse it, what their motivations are, what they see as their responsibilities, emotions they feel for different kinds of things, and the functioning of formal and informal institutions. And when you try to take a top-down approach and just place a set of institutions, usually formal institutions, built somewhere else, um, it's gonna function completely differently. So in the case of Japan, it, it happens that, uh, the you know, Japan has formal institutions are basically a copy of U.S. institutions, at least some of them, the court system and stuff. Uh, but it functions like, if you look at, you know, uh, lots of measures of how the legal system is used, it's used quite differently. It so happens it ends up working pretty well in Japan, but it, just a coincidence, it kind of works very differently from how those same institutions function in the US. And in lots of places when kind of national, federal level institutions are taken or planted in in places like Africa, they just don't function well at all, corruption invades, because the institutions assume a certain amount, a certain resistance to corruption or nepotism or kinds of other things that are very sensible, have been very sensible across uh, different human societies and back in history. So you you need to evolve the institutions within the context of the society and the institutions and the psychology have to be permitted to co-evolve over time.
0: I recall reading a, a paper by Claudia Williamson, who I believe used to be a colleague of Bill Easterly's, uh, that compared this relative strength of formal and informal institutions in different societies. And it was actually uh, societies with relatively strong informal institutions, like the cultural norms around, say, property rights, mm-hmm. and relatively weak formal institutions uh, that lent themselves to higher uh, GDP growth over time. And her proposal was if you place these very strong formal institutions in place without very strong, uh, informal institutions, what you do get is a heavy handed, uh, ability for corruption to take hold. So eminent domain being one example.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that kind of fits with my picture of how these things work. So economists like to use this uh, notion of informal institutions, but I mean, embedded deeply in there, we know is now stuff that can only sensibly be called psychology because, we can detect that in uh, second generation immigrants from, from different places. So one of the things, for example, you can do is you can look at the US or Europe and, and, and look at measures of trust. And look at it only in second generation migrants who have um, come and they've, say, grown up their entire lives in the US or their entire lives in some European country. But you can still predict something about their trust levels from the country that their parents came from. Uh, and the idea is that there's some cultural transmission uh, from parent to child that is affecting their trust levels. And so, so there's, it's more than just the, the economist notion of informal institutions.
0: So shifting gears slightly, uh, what can we learn from lost, uh, European explorers? You know, what went wrong on ships like the HMS Erebus and the HMS Terror?
3: Right. Well, I try to use lost European explorers to illustrate how stupid humans are. And, um, The key idea is that we often think that our success as a species, our fancy technology, our languages, our our ability to, say, harness lots of different food sources is a product of our intelligence. And you can see how not very smart we are when you take humans and you drop them down into an environment. In this case, it's the environments in which we evolved, right? Environments where we had to be hunter-gatherers, where we had to find food food and water and build shelters and uh, hunt game. And that's something our species has been doing for millions of years. So, you would think we'd be really good at that. But uh, you you mentioned the Franklin expedition, the ships in the Franklin expedition, and there's there's a number of other cases I outline in my book where explorers have become stranded in some
2: mine, and but yet they can't survive. Uh, They can't find food, water. Eventually, they get
3: kind of throw in with the local hunter-gatherers and get some help from them, and then they're usually able to survive then. But what that illustrates is that there's, it's not our raw intelligence that allows us to figure out how to hunt or how to make shelters or how to find food or how to purify water or how to detoxify plants, that these are products of long-term cumulative cultural evolution where no single individual has the knowledge or ability to figure stuff out, but only by the inheritance of this large body can we survive. And so those cases kind of shine a spotlight on the importance of that for our species. And that's unlike all other species. They also highlight the degree to which our intelligence is cultural, in the sense that we acquire all these pre-built solutions. So we have a numbering system, and humans don't innately have a counting system that allows them to count with bounds. Innately, humans have a counting system that's about one, two, three, and then four or more. So, um, and then we have things like we we culturally learn how to use pulleys and levers, and uh, these there were whole societies that didn't figure out the wheel. And so we get all these prebuilt solutions, which make us seem seem much smarter than we are. The same is true of languages. So the average speaker, the average undergraduate, has a vocabulary of between forty and sixty thousand words. That's you know a full repertoire of of concepts about computers and colors and metaphors and notions of freedom and um, the, the unbounded counting system I mentioned. Uh, that's compared to the smallest scale human societies, which, which have uh, entire vocabularies, entire dictionaries of three to 5,000 words. So there's just this, this, this accumulation of little tools, techniques, bits of know-how, mental habits, and heuristics, which, allow us to, which give us mental abilities, which we otherwise wouldn't have.
0: Well, one of the things that you've noted elsewhere, for example, in your conversation with Tyler Cowan, is that learning multiple languages allows somebody to not only learn different information, i.e. information that might be only recorded in that other language uh, or accessed in that other language, but also allows them to think about things from different perspectives. Could you expound
3: on that concept a little bit? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, different languages have different kinds of tools, in them, and my favorite one is um, spatial reference systems. So. Uh, in English, we have three different spatial reference systems, north, south, east, and west. That's the absolute one. There's a relative one relative to an object. So you can, once you pick an object, like a person, that there's a front, back, and a left, and a right. And then there's a relative one, where you can draw a line between, say, the parked car and the telephone pole, and you can say it's to the right or the left of the telephone pole based on the line that you draw from the car to the pole. Otherwise the pole might not have a right or left and uh but not all languages or cultural systems have had those three um so for example some groups in australia just have the absolute coordinate system which is uh which means they can't do things like right and left which can be really useful for setting a table or driving but they it also means that they get incredible cognitive abilities for absolute tracking of spatial reference. So you can take them through corridors in a, in a building and ask them to point which way is north after several turns, and they can just casually point to north or drive them through a forest or walk down trails in a forest. And they're tracking, you know, which way is north, south, east, and the west all the time. So on the one hand, they end up with some deficits because they don't have all three reference systems, but they end up with some extra cognitive abilities that most of us don't have because they're really specializing in one of those systems.
0: So based on your research and this understanding of the way that we transmit knowledge culturally and across generations, uh, do you have any suggested changes to the existing education system, particularly in the United States, the factory model that we have uh, t- that we've adopted today over the last two centuries or so?
3: Well, I mean, some of the main, the main lessons would be uh, with students, we tend to divide them up by, into these age groups. But the way humans seem to evolve to learn is in mixed age groups. So it might be smarter to have students of more different ages together going through learning together and have more collaborative learning where the older children are teaching the younger children. There's real value to taking the role of the teacher sometimes as well as taking the role of the student. So mixed age groups. Um, The other thing is that uh, for lots of things, children are more likely to learn from older or same-sex children. So when we do experiments on social learning, kids are really interested in what kids a few years older than them are doing, and um, they're better able to learn from them, they better remember what they say. So this, you know, that same idea could could harness these mixed could be harnessed in these mixed age groups. Um, I mean, those are the main things. One of the things I, some of the data I review in my book shows that things like sex and gender affect the effectiveness of adult teachers. So. Um, students just learn better when they're learning from someone who matches them on, say, in the US, say, on sex and race. Uh, there's something about these cues that people use when they tune in.
0: I, I recall some research done by uh, Peter Gray uh, in Boston on Sudbury Valley schools in particular, which uh, kind of take this, this uh, existing almost tribal model of education and make it real on a campus. Uh, where students are not age segregated, where they often do learn from younger or old, or older students, and the results that he's been able to pull uh, do certainly back that up. That when young people, especially very young children, can learn from older children, it helps both parties in the education process. So, what in particular makes societies innovate? What makes what what defines an innovative society?
3: Well. I mean, so I, what I can tell you are some of the ideas that come from thinking about cultural evolution and innovation. And uh, key to this approach is that our great ideas don't really come from our raw brain power. So the key to you, you know, what I call cumulative cultural evolution, that's this ability to generate um, growing bodies of information about all kinds of topics, ranging from language to, to medicine, comes from the flow of ideas among minds. So you need to build social networks with interconnected minds. And the great ideas often come from, uh, from between fields where you have individuals who are connected to different bodies of knowledge and can create new recombinations by taking you know, an idea from engineering and an idea from medicine and an idea from... So it, the way you want to galvanize information is by creating open networks where ideas can freely flow and meet each other. And then creating the freedom for for those recombinations to grow, it's less about the individual geniuses, which I think is the emphasis in a lot of individualistic thinking
0: so is the is the rise of trade in particular, uh, large-scale commerce- based trade out of Europe uh, during the prior to the industrial revolution, what lent itself towards the innovations that we say saw that come, came out of that period?
3: Well, uh, I guess my, uh, the, my answer to that is, is yes, but the, the question would then be, why did you get trade? Yeah. Uh, and so my answer to that is that psychology had already changed. So the Catholic Church had dismantled the family structure of Europe and left it open to people interacting in voluntary associations. And what those voluntary associations did, one of them is trade, but the other one was to you know, share knowledge. And that's also led to the innovation. So having trade between cities certainly allowed information to flow from one city to another, but that couldn't have been possible without the change in the social structure that had preceded.
0: Michael Gibson and I sat down after these conversations to discuss some of the applicable ideas that we can take from it. In particular, uh, Michael and I discussed The different roles that are played by different institutions, whether they're formal or informal institutions, so an an informal institution being like culture and a formal institution being like something like the university. And, you know, one of the things that we took away from this conversation is things are not nearly as simple as they seem. Human sacrifice might be much more complex than it appears at its first sight. The university system, as an example, might be much more complex than it appears at first sight. That doesn't mean that these things shouldn't be replaced. You know, human sacrifice was eventually replaced once the once the parties that were involved understood the role that it played. The university system could be replaced so long as you are unbundling many of the functions that are played by it, right? So this conversation, we go over some of the things that we talked about with Leeson and with Henrik, and our goal here is to kind of seed some ideas for your own conversations that you may have around these topics. So please enjoy, feel free to write us, feel free to get in touch. Like I said at the beginning of this conversation, 1517fund.com forward slash take dash action.
4: Prices reveal information, so it's mm-hmm. actually a form of computation that's socially aggregated and done in a way that reflects all the differing contexts and circumstances of time and place, and, and and a price will unify all that information in a really efficient manner. Um, and and I guess Sunstein was saying that this or what he claimed was like that what the genius of Burke and Hayek is to show that institutions do the same thing over time. Right. It's like you have all these people trying different ways of life, different ways of solving problems, coordination problems, and and this goes to what uh, the the Henrik interview where over generations that adds up, and you what's left to future generations are the results of those experiments in some fashion that are passed down. And 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 you find, uh, you know, it is interesting to compare Leeson and Henrik in that Leeson is like, okay, this is how they solve social problems uh, or disputes and, and coordination problems. And Henrik is, is pretty much saying also that this is how you just live a good life. Sometimes it, it comes down to like what you're eating. So there are these rituals about food preparation where over generations, they learn how to, Remove the toxins from plants by incredibly complex processes and and a food prep, but no one in the community like knows why they do that. It's like
0: this is even a point that in one of his Bible lectures, I think Jordan Peterson makes about ayahuasca. I ayahuasca.
4: okay, yeah, ayahuasca.
0: I always see the word, can't pronounce it. Uh, that in order to make ayahuasca, you have to combine two different roots that are actually like really far away from each other. Uh, where they oh, interesting. It. And you have to go through like this ridiculous process in order to combine them.
4: It's, <laughs> there's this question It's like, how did they figure this out, right? Yeah,
0: right. And how long did it take them?
4: There are so many plants that will kill you. So many, not le- <laughs> let alone bacteria. Right. The toxins in the plants alone. And then uh and then the form of plants I, in California, there are a lot of artichokes. And I always think to myself, it's like, whoever thought of steaming these things, knowing that you can't eat the whole thing, you can only eat a little bit and that the heart was at the center was worth eating. It's just it's incredible that all that knowledge was gained somehow in the past and then passed down. And then and in some way it can be made sacred or all these uh, all these patterns of behavior tie into deeper emotions around these practices. And then, and then they're just passed on and no one could ever explain why it's good that they do that. in in terms of like the actual underlying causal structure, but nevertheless, it is good for you to right. eat the food that way or to do things that way.
0: No. And I think there's, there's more overlap between Henrik and Leeson than it first appears. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I pushed Leeson a little bit on this uh, because the, economic way of thinking, especially if you start to bring up, you know, the the boogeyman that is homo economicus, it's Mm. really, really easy for people to dismiss it as, okay, well, that's overly
4: rationalistic, right? Yeah, right. But they're just accomplishing whatever goal you say they want to accomplish. So (laughs) what explanatory service does does that have? Yeah.
0: But it's important to take into account, too, that when somebody is actually, you know, maximizing their utility, there's a lot of things that go into that, right? Yeah um the, the the traditional cartoonish model of homo economicus is like that he'd never engage in charity and it's like well no people get psychic benefits from engaging in charity right and it's part, yeah, of, their, right.
4: part of their idea of the good it's part of their idea
1: of leading a good life
4: right and i i think about that all the time with the uh, the ultimatum game this is something that uh psychologists and uh other people have have tested around the world um in order to show that there's this innate sense of fairness so um, you know, the experiment, something like someone would, uh, the experimenter gives me a hundred dollars and then I have to propose a cut to you. Oh, Henrik uh, talked about this. Yeah. And so if you, uh, if you reject it, then we both get nothing. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's right. He did talk about that. So the funny thing is like, um, you know, there's a reason we have that sense of fairness, even on a one-off, it, it's, it's. Like the, but life is never a one-off thing, is what I'm trying to say. Right? Is you propose a 50 50 split or 60 40 or like no one does the 99 and one dollar split because
0: you have to deal with people
4: outside of the context of Yeah, that. Is that it's a life is a repeated game, and no one knows when the last last session is. I, so you I, be better by rules that. You know, make you a good player to play with down the road, and that, and that, I, I could be echoing Joe, Jordan Peterson. I think he talks about this kind of stuff. But
0: I was going to say, I don't know if it's Peterson or somebody else, but I've mm-hmm. I've heard it said, and this this is one of the best ways I've heard this said: is that you never want to sacrifice uh, success across the series of game for success in one of the games, right? Yeah. Life life is a series of games, right? Yeah. You've got your personal aspect of your life, you've got um, uh, you know, your professional aspect, you and then those divide into smaller categories and those divide into smaller categories, and there's a series of games in each of those categories and interacting with other human beings, right? Mm. And you'll you'll sometimes see people who that in order to win like one part of the one of one of those games, right? Mm. You see this with um the way that people will sabotage Large aspects of their life, with uh, their relationships, for example, I think
4: is oh yeah right. Oh. All the burning was- bridges, right? Reputational consequences. Yeah, it's strange. Um, yeah, I, Peter Thiel has I forget where this is, but he he did say once, it's like one of his contrarian views is that you shouldn't live as if today is going to be the last day of your life. You should live as if it's going to be. As if you could live forever,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
4: something along those lines: Well, and that's, that's and the reason he says that is because if you think you're going to have long-term relationships with people for a very, very long time, then you'll do more to cultivate them in a, in a positive way. Whereas if you know you're going to die soon, then you know that they're, that this is the last uh game in the prisoner's dilemma, and therefore you should defect.
0: Right. And this, going back to the conversations that we recorded, I think this is, again, one of these things where young people in particular are, are particularly prone to this. And I think this is just, you know, lack of experience, yeah. more than anything else. But, you know, interpersonal norms develop over long periods of time because it, they're ways of building fruitful relationships that work. Right. <laughs> like there, there are certain things that you just don't do with other people that, you know, on the face of it might look kind of absurd. But if you know, right. follow that, it, it makes it easier for you to preserve those relationships.
4: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. All the and, and there are a ton of rituals around that. Uh, all the way from like just handshakes to uh, wedding ceremonies,
0: or, or think about the the very public nature of mass in a traditional uh, mm. church, right? Like yep. everybody goes up to the altar in front of everybody
4: else. Yeah, there's a another book uh, that that that's good on this. The um, I think it's called Rational Ritual, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that author points out is is these these rituals create common knowledge in a community. So when we all see each other in public and this could be related to politics or or religion um not only are we receiving some sort of message from uh the authorities or or whatever's happening but I know that you also received the message and you know that I received the message and I know that you know that I know and so on and it creates common knowledge in the community that it helps uh, reinforce norms yeah exactly which solve Uh, coordination problems.
0: You know, one of the things that I actually got a lot of value out of in in college was I had the opportunity to study um, under a moral psychologist uh, some of the ideas around the moral psychology of emotions.
4: Oh right, yeah. You gave me a book on disgust, that yeah, <laughs> I to admit I have not read. <laughs> that,
0: that, that's a really good book, actually. Okay, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going to get two, to it two or
4: three years ago. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, I, that, that's a good book. Not not only because of the stuff around um, disgust in particular, but yeah. that's a good book because I think it lays a lot of the foundations of, of a lot that we're talking about here. And you know, one of the points that a lot of the people in moral psychology will make that I think is really really important is that. Most reactive attitudes, which a lot of emotions are reactive attitudes, but not all reactive, not all emotions are reactive attitudes, but resentment is like the go-to example, Mm. right? They are reactions to violations of commonly shared norms, of of commonly shared expectations, right? Um, So the go-to example is I'm sitting on the subway or I'm sitting on the bus for whatever godforsaken reason, and you come over and you step on my foot. Right. Mm. And it's very clear in this context that you saw me and you still stepped on my foot. Right. Right. There's a shared expectation that you're going to not step on my foot, which actually might be rooted in, in a more deeper tradition on something like uh, the value of, of personhood. Right. Mm. Um, or respecting other individuals. And by violating that, I feel resent uh, by you, violating that I feel resentment against you. Right. Or if you recognize that you've violated it yourself, you might feel guilt. Or if a third party sees it, uh, they might feel indignation, right? Mm. Similarly, I think gratitude works in the same way, is that I have a certain expectation somebody violates that in a positive way by going above and beyond, right?
4: Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's good. I like that.
0: But that's another one of the, you know, I I think that one of the things that happens,
4: I'm kind of shooting from the hip
0: here, but I think that one of the things that happens when you move into – A highly iconoclastic culture or a society that doesn't have these shared rituals, right? Mm -hmm. Is that the expectations, like people don't know what the shared expectations are. And this is one of the reasons why I think you see people just so pissed off today.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, keep going. I, I like where you're going. I think one of the
0: reasons that everyone is pissed off is that everybody has different sets of expectations, right? Yep. And and we don't actually know what like the underlying shared expectations in the community are. And if we actually had a, a set of shared expectations, then mm. we would be able to figure out like, okay, this person's pissed off because I violated this expectation, but I don't actually share that expectation with them. So I don't know <laughs> what, what expectation, like, I violated. Right.
4: Yeah. Right. Right. So,
0: so even though you've got like a much more, um, of like uh, heterodox society, yeah uh, you actually don't have these these ex- expectations and these norms being shared across the smaller communities in the society. And I think that well, a, I, I
4: I think there is some research that could indirectly support your view, where uh, I think Robert Putnam, of bowling alone fame, had yeah, yeah. published some stuff on how uh, really diverse cities and communities just have much you know greater dissatisfaction and, and fighting and, and conflict than uh, really homogeneous places Um, and and that it's hard to integrate people into communities. And and so, I don't know, that would fit the model you're describing.
0: Well, and I think it's hard to integrate people because of what we were talking about a couple minutes ago, like some yeah. of these things develop over like, like the, the expectation that that you're going to respect me as an individual by not stepping on my foot. Like that's something that actually like develops over hundreds of years and probably yeah. goes, back, goes back to at least a uh, lock and it could all the way, could go all the way back to Aristotle. Right. <laughs> that's pretty deeply. Yeah. That's pretty deeply ingrained in, in whatever culture has that expectation. Right. Yep. So if you take somebody from a totally different culture, you might actually, in order to, to get to a shared common point between those those two groups of people, yeah. you might have to undo or reprogram hundreds if not thousands of years of of evolutionary biology and evolutionary
3: anthropology.
4: It's hard work. I was thinking about this in context of trying to get – if if my goal in working on 1517 is to – Um, provide an alternative path to higher education or to, you know, maybe not provide the path, but maybe support it and validate it. Um, You know, the first people who who don't go to college, there are two parts of this. One is that, uh, you know, maybe the the social function of college is, is tied into these latent or, you know, these deep seated, uh, practices that I'm unaware of. So it's like, it's almost like I'm, I'm some colonist visiting the developing world. And, and here I, I'm characterizing Harvard and Yale as the developing world and I'm trying (laughs) to, uh, impose my views on them, but I don't understand that, uh, you know, to, in order for them to, to do that, it would mean like uprooting, you know, thousands, a thousand years tradition or something ridiculous. Um, Yeah, there's that part of it. But then there's also the other part, which is that uh, baked into the college experience are all the sorts of public rituals that we're describing that Mm -hmm. confirm uh, the common knowledge that, you know, you're partaking in something that, you you know, you talked to Lisa about ordeals. Uh, I think there's, there's like, what is the ordeal of college that people willingly undergo and why? Um, and, And I think that runs the gamut from the frat, Uh, hazing rituals all the way to the four year coursework that culminates in a day where people dress up in robes and carry staffs and and give strange speeches about life. (laughs) So I was like, that seems very WTF to me. Um,
0: At the same time, I have run into people who, when I have conversations with them about, you know, challenging the status quo for uh, higher education, they feel almost visceral offense at the idea. The, almost yeah, that it's right. that it's unfair or that somebody who would who would do otherwise is an outsider
4: right yeah and 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 i guess that's almost like telling someone in the in the medieval era with the with the trial by ordeal that uh you know trying to get them not to believe in in the god who can judge by physical attributes or whatever you know whatever the set of beliefs were exactly but uh that somehow made it rational to pursue you know try to determine innocence and guilt by by ordeal you know maybe it's like emotionally something similar is happening with with college because it's it's satisfying this social function that people accept based on beliefs that that you know to to me seem like uh they're antiquated and archaic um, oh. but nevertheless, I don't know, to them are very real. It's like the difference between being in the matrix and not, maybe i am oh. not explaining that well, but
0: no, 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 w- but with any, you know, product, you know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to say product because it goes. it's a bit, a bit heavier than, than product uh, adoption. But, you know, one of the things I've read about and I've seen is that, you know, with any particularly odd product that requires somebody to violate a, a given expectation or norm, no. um, you know the go-to example would be Uber, right? There, there's yeah. a picture that's gone around on the internet that's like 2005. Don't talk to strangers. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Don't yeah. talk to don't talk to strangers. Don't meet people from the internet. Uh, 2017. Literally, summon a stranger from the internet and climb into their car. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. And that's like good. The, the first people to yeah. to use something like that are probably going to be kind of weird, right? Yeah,
4: that's I mean, good. I, Online dating is the same way. I remember in 2002 yeah. or three only. Yeah, only outcasts and, and lustful, uh, yeah, definitely strange people <laughs> were the types to do. People online. who might have Chris Hansen show up at their house, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and now I I, mean, I go to weddings quite frequently now where it's it's uh, the bride and groom have met and they're pretty uh, mainstream people. You're right. So those norms can change.
0: And it takes. I think it just takes people who are more. Uh, Maybe they're just less sensitive to other people's opinions. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to so think so more in, in,
4: in the diffusion of, of, of innovation, you need some early adopters, and they're going to be weird people. <laughs> and then hopefully they provide a, an example set of something, you know, something appealing to, to the laggards. And
0: Oh, I got into a, a stranger's car, and they didn't, you know, rape and
4: murder me. Good. Yeah. Cool. That's, that is, that's a success. <laughs> right? And I got to my location where I wanted to go. I think the Teal Fellowship served that purpose in some ways where people leaving school to do something on their own is, is very risky. Um, and, and then the conversations that they would have with their parents and friends back in their hometowns. If, if, if the fellowship didn't exist and they talked to these people about dropping out of school and moving to Silicon Valley, I mean, it sounds a little bit crazy. It's like moving to Hollywood uh and trying to become an actor and, and so it's it just seems like you're wasting your future uh because it just doesn't make sense to people. But but if you have a reason uh that is backed by authority or something, then then suddenly the conversation doesn't go down that path. So, oh, why are you going to Silicon Valley? Oh, because this guy Peter Thiel has this fellowship and so on. And, and so that's like from the individual perspective and then you get a group perspective too because you're with a batch of people uh then you know there's the comfort of knowing that other people are joining you you're not the only one standing out uh and and i think that can be very valuable so to the extent you know by funding people who are working on on projects outside of school i think the fellowship and i know we did this with 1517 and you know you help people and in, in, in your own life it's like the more examples you have and the more other people know of these people and these people know that they know and all that and you create a common knowledge uh it'll take time but that maybe that's the strategy
0: uh, I, I you can remonstrate with people all day build the most logical argument you know against spending those years and that money and instead working on something tangible yeah, right. or you can just show them someone who's done it and isn't you know homeless <laughs> seconds, right? yeah and the latter yeah. the latter is uh, you know nine times out of ten going to be much
2: more powerful yeah but um
4: but yeah, it's hard work
0: <laughs> uprooting hundreds if not
4: thousands of years of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i wish more I, i'd love to know more about the latent social functions of higher education i i think i think it's clear and and you and leeson touched on this some with um that just that the whole process and is a uh, solving a communication problem mm-hmm. that in in the labor market uh it's very hard to to distinguish uh, loyal employees from disloyal employees or hardworking people from lazy people, free riders. Um, and so one way for people to reliably send a message is to undergo an ordeal of some kind that uh, requires great cost and uh, takes a long time. And so, you know, that's what the four-year college experience does right now. Um, and that's independent of any content of the education. So, so I guess maybe, maybe the burden on, on people like us encouraging people to work on things outside of school and, and make their own way is that, is that if we don't solve that communication problem, uh, then it's going to be, it, it just makes the difficulties almost insurmountable. You gotta, or, or as a society, it's like, if we're going to improve, uh, the college experience or just the education experience is that we have to come up with an alternative communication system. Yeah. For people.
0: Well, this is when someone asks me, what should I do? If I, you know, I want to take a leave of absence. I want to take a gap year. I just don't want to go to college, whatever. I just tell them like get get started on building something, whether it's something that's your own and you are like the source of it, yeah. or join an early stage company where you get that opportunity that at least signals something, right? Yeah. If you're actually building something, it's something you can turn to. Even if it fails, it's like, this is something I put time and energy and focus into and, you can tell a story alongside that it's not as um clear or as quick a heuristic as something like a degree but it's something
4: yeah yeah it's good in the way that artists build portfolios exactly and build, uh on github they, they post up their code and people can vet it and and the more that we see ways of validating your abilities the better. That 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 is solving the communication problem to some extent. I guess there are intangible things like loyalty that, that are very hard to LinkedIn doesn't have that yet. Well and <laughs> but,
0: but but then there's a you know, uh, this question that comes back to the Nirvana fallacy, which is your you're, you're are we really comparing realistic alternatives here, right?
4: Yeah. If I, right. if I
0: see a, a college degree, um, you know, just the degree, that doesn't really tell me much about loyalty at all.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, maybe it shows that you're maybe loyalty is not the right word, but your dedication to seeing through the project of jumping through four years of hoops.
0: But again, it's it's again we have to come back to like. How realistic does it actually signal something to me? It, it, it's not that hard. And which there's, there's, there's a flip side to this, which means that if you don't have it, it's going to be this much harder to prove
4: that. Wait, wait. Are you saying college isn't actually hard? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm of two minds of that. Like, I totally agree with that statement. You can breeze through, especially in some of the weaker majors, uh, and, and actually you know, be a C or be a student, and, and suddenly you have a degree, and what do you – haven't you learned anything? But then you look at the, uh, it makes you wonder though, when you look at the, the research in like the book, Academically Adrift, and then other places where, uh, you just, I, I think it's something on the order of like 40% of students who enter into four year universities, they don't finish by six years. And then, uh, and then you look at the, le- it, it, it's like people aren't making it through and way too many people are going to college who shouldn't be going in terms of, You know, do they want to study these things? Actually,
0: And way too many people are graduating, though. There's also
4: that. point. I guess there's that, too. So there's three there's three buckets here, right
0: there. There's the bucket of people who should actually be going, which that's a you know, there's there's a big value discussion that we can have there. There's the, the bucket of people who shouldn't be going. And there's the other bucket of people who shouldn't be going. But that's because they could be doing something better with their time yes it would, yeah. would signal something better than just having that diploma so i yeah. I, I mean I, I look at what's required in order to just get the the degree yeah and i, I look at that and i'm like okay that's it, it's pretty pretty hard per- not to do that if if that's i know i know about.
4: okay here's the the other book i read that's coming to me with a lot of like eye opening data is charles murray's book real education
3: i haven't read that one
4: and it is just astounding how little people know in this country and and he's he he shows he takes you through and this is uh k through twelve as well mm. it's college and so you look at the types of questions on exams that they give in order to uh the tests of knowledge and so on and and then and then you see how many people get it wrong nationally, and you're thinking and I'm thinking to myself I'm like, holy shit, we're a nation of three hundred million people and and there's only some tiny number who uh who know the Pythagorean theorem and can answer a multiple-choice question on but, that. You know, that kind of goes back to what did. we were talking about a couple minutes ago is why, yeah. were,
0: why did these institutions develop in the first place? And I mean the formal institution of the
4: university, right? Yeah.
0: And they really developed in the West for two reasons. Uh, one was in order to train a clergy, and yeah. the other was slightly later in order to train research experts. Yep. Uh, at no point did they really develop in order to create a educated laity. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like that's that's, that's something that was kind of tacked on with the GI Bill not that long ago, like maybe really? 40 or 50 years ago.
4: Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Is in the um, I think in in England there there's the the rule of primogeniture, the idea that the eldest son inherits all the property, created an interesting social problem where you had the second, third, fourth, born sons needing something to do. And I think this is what they what they would do is they'd send these people to Oxford and Cambridge to become uh, priests and lawyers and, uh, and other types. Um, but you're right. Is like and, and what's funny is like that's kind of baked into the college experience still. It's like something you should do for three years that in order to figure out, I don't know, it's not it's not trained for a profession or whatever. It's like you, you're the, the whole idea of the gentleman's see that you're like this landed gentry that just needs something to do because summer camp for four years, yeah. Yeah. That carries on. But at no point did anyone ever see the the purpose of these institutions as how do we actually teach people anything and do it well and get better at it over time and so on.
0: (laughs) It's hard to you know, there's there's this point that and I think this could, you know, we could we could take this this conversation in a thousand different directions, right? Yeah. Um, you know, some of the stuff we, we we even mentioned in conversation here, Jordan Peterson. I thought about asking him to join this series of conversations, but mm. um, there there's a point that Carl Jung makes somewhere, which is that you know, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm probably going to butcher it, yeah. uh, but it's it's generally it goes <laughs> along the lines that. You know, that part of the mind where you cannot look is where you must look,
4: right? Oh, right.
0: Uh, Which generally, I I generally interpret, and the people I've read who are much more well-versed and young than myself, Mm. I interpret it as meaning, like, when you're doing introspection or you're doing psychotherapy or you're doing something like that, and you get resistance uh, against exploring a certain, you know, memory or experience or set of ideas, you know, the you're gonna play little tricks on yourself to make sure that you don't actually like look at that part or look at that thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that means that you probably should look at it, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think I, that there's a similar point um, institutionally, which is you, you don't, you know, it's funny um, while we're talking here, you, Brian Kaplan just released his book or is releasing his book, The Case Against Education, and yep. uh, which is a whole, you know, signaling case. Uh, but if you follow him on Twitter, Watching people's like deeply offended reactions to, against him saying, you know, only five percent of people should go to college <laughs> is really, really interesting because I yeah. think again one of these instances where it's like maybe that means we need to seriously look at this as an educating tool, right? Mm. It's never designed to actually educate normal average people, right? Or, or even you know people who aren't landed gentry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, and I think just the fact that people are so viscerally they react so viscerally to someone saying like we should explore that means eh, maybe we should actually explore that
4: more <laughs> <laughs> yeah i the uh the same thing was uh, charles murray i think in in his book said the same thing at the time that there are just too many this is that group of they're referring to the group of people who are currently going to college and probably shouldn't because either it's too cognitively demanding or maybe behaviorally it's just not right for them or or, you know they are just not up to it but because society has established that you're a pariah if you don't have a degree um, and that it is the aspirational goal that everyone should have um, you know these people go to college um, and it's so I think yeah that's like that is one of the sacrosanct things you cannot say because it's this vehicle for the American dream that is the only in in the eyes of the status quo is that it is the it is the main vehicle of social mobility and so to say that, oh you know you, this person coming out of a community college in Bakersfield, you know now they want to transfer i don't know it's like to say that that person whoever is working hard that way to 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 make it in the world that they shouldn't be going to college somehow smacks of just elitism and uh, snobbery and, and then also just, uh, callousness. But that, but, but it doesn't have to be that way. If, if I think that, I think maybe rhetorically is what we should do is, is say that the alternative is actually much more enriching and fine or mm. <laughs> whatever. Um, you know, whatever. If someone does pursue a trade as a carpenter or a plumber instead of going to, uh, college and struggling and, and hating themselves for it, um, That should be seen as a positive thing. Why is that taken? I hate that that's taken as a negative.
0: Well, again, I think one of the difficulties there is you're going to run into this, you know, getting the degree is a really, it's not a, you know, maybe going through the process is cognitively demanding. There's a question mark there. But now now that you have it, you have it in your hand and that's not a cognitively demanding um, process of saying, I've made it, right? If you don't have that that easy finish line that someone can run across, and maybe one of the things we should talk about is developing other finish lines, right? Yeah, right. Is then people have to ask themselves, it's like, okay, how do I measure myself against you know my my own standards for success or my own standards for the American dream? I mean, I think a point that isn't talked about a lot here, uh, that's you know, again, we could go on a long time about this. Just in particular, is mm. uh, the parenting point is. For a lot of parents, sending their kid to college and getting that kid to graduate is like the, the thing that says, like, I succeeded as a parent. Yeah, absolutely. Like, well, how else would they – what else would they have if they didn't have that?
4: Yeah, it's awful. I, one of my recent uh, contrarian uh, views on popular culture is my, uh, my hatred for this movie Lady Bird that is critically praised right now. And it, and it's mainly because spoiler alert, <laughs> because the, muse, the the movie basically, uh, it, like the whole happy ending and the whole plot structured on everything we're talking about right here. Mm-hmm. Where the end of the movie, the the, the ladybird protagonist, uh, her her happy ending is that she her dad takes out mortgages. He's unemployed. He, he refinance[s] the house in order for her to go to a fancy liberal arts school in New York instead of. Uh, University of California at Davis. And, and to me, this is just like, that's it's appalling. So <laughs> appalling and toxic that, that this is our society's version of a happy ending for a coming of age story these days. And, and that, and that parents would say that, the, that this guy is, is doing what a great parent does. And, and to me, it's just awful. My view is like, holy cow, this guy's being enslaved. He's immolating himself. Being shamed into helping his daughter and her juvenile wishes, <laughs> and, then, and then from her perspective, I take it she's just totally lost. And she even at the end of the movie, I don't know if you've seen it, she goes I to the school and she hates it. It's like you get this, uh, you get this like coda at the end of the movie where she hates the liberal arts school and just gets drunk there. And I don't, know. it's just it's upsetting. To but me. What,
0: what other coming? You know, yeah, that, that's a fantastic point because what other coming of age rituals do? Do we, whatever we is as a no. society, have? I mean, there really are not anymore. more. Yeah, whether no. that's, whether that's,
4: you know, maybe that's why the, the commencement speech. of our Yeah, the commencement speech has such a high place in our culture now as a yearly parade of of what a meaningful life is. Um, I think, in in part, because of exactly what you just said, it is the this is the one coming of age ritual that is secular and yet somehow holy. It's not tied to any sort of uh religious system, and yet it has all the trappings
0: Well, it, but uh, it it's not even a particularly good ritual too because <laughs> the vast majority uh, the vast majority of, you know successful coming of age rituals uh throughout throughout history uh what they do is they help signal something about that individual's ability to you know be something in that culture right yeah right and especially especially the K through 12 level, because it's determined by zip code or county or just arbitrarily where you live and arbitrarily the date in, on which you were born. But like you don't get to choose a lot of the people in that that community that you're going through that coming of age ritual that is the commencement speech. You know, whether it's at the K through 12 level <laughs> or the higher level, you yeah, you kind of get some choice uh, uh, on the on who's going to be at the university that you go to based on like the culture and what the university specializes in. But it's no. not like the values of the other people in that community are probably like very very different than your own. So it's not even a community. This is a point John Gatto makes. It's <laughs> schools. One of the really dangerous things about schools is that they look like communities, but they're not. They're what he calls um,
4: networks. Right. They're yep.
0: networks. And networks don't actually signal anything to the other members of it if you remove, like, the core thing about the network, right? Mm. So the the core thing might be, you know, we might all be members of,
4: like, Toastmasters, right?
0: Toastmasters isn't a community. It's a network. Because if I remove the public speaking element, we don't have anything in common.
4: Yeah. I mean, even more mundane, uh, and this is uh, Jean-Paul Sartre's example, is a bunch of people waiting in line to get on a bus more than even getting on the bus. It's like, in, in one sense, they are a group of people united in some fashion. They're trying to get to the same place, but they have nothing in common. Yeah. <laughs> they, they just happen to choose the same bus. Yeah. Which is a very weak social social tie.